This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Wake up Australia. Let's hit the ground running like Joe Biden in 2021. Let's cancel the permit for Galilee Coal. Let's cancel the permit for Beetaloo Gas. Let's announce that emergency climate action means jobs. Let's create renewable energy precincts and retrofit buildings for zero emissions. And then go beyond zero emissions. That's always been our name. Let's throw away the measly targets of surrender, as Greta Thunberg calls them, and let's treat this like an emergency. Heidi Lee, the new CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions, will talk to us tonight about just how we can stop emissions in their tracks. It's called the Million Jobs Plan. Then from Austria, we will hear from Bob Berwin about zero. Many scientists say global heating would stop relatively quickly after we get to zero. David Spratt says this is a minefield, but let's actually start to think about getting to zero. No more targets of surrender. 2021 is going to be momentous for Australia, I think. And with me in the the Zoom studio is the new CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions, Heidi Lee. Happy New Year, Heidi, and welcome. Thank you, Vivian. Happy New Year to you too. Do you feel that 2021 is heading now in the right direction? Yes, I have a very optimistic outlook. I think you know that just as a human and I think that the last 12 months of Beyond Zero Emissions, we have seen some of the most ambitious climate action taken, uh, not always in Australia, certainly overseas, and we're now working really closely with companies and with governments in Australia to help Australia stay relevant, stay current, and get ahead in this global race to zero emissions. So I think you're right. We really are seeing more change than ever before but not yet enough. Yes, and it's more urgent than before too. We always used to, I've known you for, I realise, about 10 years. And back then we used to say there's a 10-year window of opportunity. Well, that 10 years is gone, so it's even more urgent. I've known Heidi all that time, and she's been at BZE in various capacity. And there's a photo of her with the radio team and Dr. David Suzuki. I don't know if you remember, he was visiting the Sustainable Living Festival And he gave a rousing talk to us about a new relationship with nature and each other. And now we've just had COVID and the people around Naomi Klein, you know, the Green New Deal, Leap Manifesto, those people, they're calling it the caring economy. So there's a kind of a shift, cultural shift. And I know you are an expert in sustainable buildings and urban design. And I know you've made a study of intentional living. 
communities. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your experience, like how you've come to this and what do you think about those big cultural shifts, shifts to help people live in a more connected way that is low carbon? That's such an interesting arc to take, Vivian, and I think of that because I reckon you've interviewed me a couple of times about um, sustainable buildings and, uh, and co-housing. I think you came and did that interview as well. I think that the common thread for me between the, the social trends as well as the, the economic trends and technologies, the underpinning thing here is really collaboration. And we understand better than ever how to use technology, how to use social media, how to use our physical spaces in our local communities as opportunities to work to and play and, and share together better. So for me, the BZD journey has always been about connecting up like great people and, and getting a really interesting, smart, smart crew of people together and focusing them on solving a problem. That's always been true. We've, we've done that in everything from our radio shows, our research, our community outreach, all of it, it has that common thread. So I think that the parallel to draw between a caring economy and the social justice movement and those other things, they're really drawing on those same connection and collaboration skills that we also see when we work at BZD on our research and we're working in, you know, renewable powered manufacturing, that's also benefiting from greater collaboration in the way that you might start using a factory as an active player in the energy system to make sure that the energy in the grid is always reliable. That is a two-way collaboration rather than just looking at things as a, a one-way input-output model. We're really starting to look at networks and collaborative approaches to how we solve these issues. Well, you gave a talk at last year's Sustainable Living Festival. It was rousing, wasn't it? People loved hearing about that. And a lot of what you know is really under the radar for the average person. I consider myself the average person, even though I read so much about climate and everything. I'm not, I don't visit those factories that you visit. And that's what I want you to tell us about. Um, during COVID, you led BZE in its Million Jobs Plan, which shows the way to a COVID recovery, which is not reliant on more exported gas or more imported oil. And that path is filled with innovative projects. And I know they're out of sight to most people, but tell us or take us there. Take us to one or two of those factories you've been to or heard about. For example, I like hearing about um, assembling electric buses and electric trucks. You might be speaking to me a little bit ahead of the game uh, <laughs> here. So I'm actually going to visit Sea um, Electric this Friday, and I'm really excited about that. You can look that one up online. They're actually retrofitting buses and trucks and cherry pickers and all sorts of heavy machinery yeah. with batteries, it's taking an existing piece of, of machinery and retrofitting that instead of building things from scratch. So less waste and, and yes. still a zero emissions outcome when you charge it with renewables. But I think that the journey for me, and I reckon the one you might be alluding to, uh, started a few years ago when I was working on buildings. I was an architect and I was designing green buildings and I had the opportunity to really dive deeply into the materials space. So you think of building materials and it's everything from your timbers and your concrete and steel and it's carpets and it's paints and everything. What I was really concerned about was was health. And the, in a building, when you look at building materials, there's that really tangible connection between 
what you touch, what you make your building out of, and mm. the occupant's health, whether it's your office or your home. And hasn't that really landed? Like in 2020, mm. that's really become quite a prevalent topic. Your home has to be healthy, has to be efficient, it has to perform well. So I was on that journey, like how can architects specify better building materials? Who's making the best building materials? And so I went on a tour. I ended up trying to find the the greenest you know, materials being made. I actually ended up at the Method Soap Factory in Chicago in the Pullman District. This factory is taking producing soap, right, but also it is producing clean air through a greenhouse on its roof that is also growing. Um, it's the largest productive greenhouse in the northern hemisphere, I think. It's absolutely mm. enormous on the roof of this factory. It is producing clean water. The water comes out of the factory and it is rehabilitating a wetland all around the area. It's addressing social justice. It's the, the way that the factory works, um, enables workers from lots of different abilities and different backgrounds to be able to safely operate and run and take ownership, really, of the factory. So it was just an extraordinary journey. So they're making something quite relevant, quite productive in the economy. Soap, very relevant this year, very relevant last year. Soapy hands, everyone. Use Method Soap because they have one of the most exciting factories architecting sort of led me on that journey around healthy materials and then I came back to Australia and I took a, a year out this was my year out to really have a think about how I wanted to make a difference uh, to the you know to climate change and of course I went back and volunteered at BZE and part of that initial task I was set was looking at how we could bring our work out of the electrifying industry report to life so mm -hmm. that report I think was released in 2018 written by Michael Lord and a, a great team of researchers. And we had 10 case studies. And so my job at that time was to look at, well, these, this is a great study. These are great examples. But how far can we get with Australian businesses and Australian manufacturers? Can we actually get green steel happening at a commercial scale in one of these factories? Could we get, you know, a, a milk factory or a cheese factory? Oh, we used to talk about beer um, quite a lot, like a brewery or gas. <laughs> we like the idea that they would have uh, feel indebted to us and very grateful and perhaps pay us in beer. But no, we were <laughs> just really excited about the opportunity. <clears throat> so we looked at dairy and we looked at breweries and we, we looked at all these different um, types of factories. And what became apparent to me was really that there were some urban design principles that I was really familiar with that apply really strongly in the manufacturing sector it is never more relevant or more beneficial than in manufacturing to get clusters of users together that have different energy needs some very high temperature users so industrial process heat can be up to like 800 degrees or more and have uh, opportunities to put other types of processing facilities near them that need different temperatures of heat what that does is it means that there are opportunities, and if they're designed well, they are opportunities to be able to do things like share that um, that heat around so you get more value out of your process heat than you would otherwise just a single use, generate the very high temperature heat, use it for your industrial process, and then exhaust it out of a, a stack. But you don't. that doesn't have to be like that. You can start to share it, and that happens in manufacturing precincts overseas. 
but not yet in Australia. So this is a really current idea, really relevant to how we approach looking at our COVID recovery, getting lots of Australians back to work and modernising our manufacturing sector. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare, spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. And I endorse that. Please become a subscriber from as little as $35 per year. You help us stay on air and give us a signal that you want to hear more. Beyond Zero Emissions show has been on air for about 13 years. I've been here for 11. We give our time voluntarily and it's become fascinating to see over those years how climate change has become mainstream and we keep pushing and pushing the more progressive side of thinking about that. Now we'll go back to Heidi Lee. She's the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions. Starting off our year with the big picture about wind farms, advanced solar and green manufacturing. You were talking about uh, wind farms and our concentrating solar thermal plants that we were talking about 10 years ago. And we projected in that first report as well that there'd be a really massive um, decrease in the price of PV. We thought it would come down by about... uh, I think 40%, 50% for solar PV, that's come down over 80 to 90% instead. Nobody could have predicted that. And I think that's why we're seeing the astonishing <laughs> uh, prevalence of these massive solar farms and the huge opportunities to export direct energy. Like who would have predicted Sun Cable in 2010 when BZE first published our report? It was a, it was an idea in our 2015 superpower report but now it's uh, it's next to reality, like it's a pipeline project. And that's just unbelievable, shows you some of the trends and ways that both the market and technology can come behind these great solutions. So I think that when we have those national commitments in place, what we're able to do then is to plan with confidence to build those wind farms like Australia would we would do really well to build a substantial amount of our own wind farms we are doing there are a lot of innovations in battery technology that are made by Australian companies we want to make sure that that doesn't go the way of solar technology where the the idea was exported instead of the the uh, product and so now we're importers of solar technology and I think I saw a University of New South Wales claim the other day that 
I think it was 86% of solar panels in the world have UNSW technology in them. What a shame that a vastly <laughs> larger number of them aren't actually made in Australia. Yeah. And that's, that's the chance, you know, some integrated thinking around how we actually re-energise our manufacturing sector and make some claims. Let's put some flags in the sand about how quickly we can not just get to 100% renewables, but but 500%, 700% renewables. That's all export opportunity from there on. Yeah. What we find is that there are companies who are making choices right now when it comes to scaling up their operations. They might already have um, operations in a couple of different countries, but they're making decisions based on policy certainty, yep. on energy prices, and on the carbon intensity of the products that they're going to make. Because large companies and forward-thinking companies are recognising that they actually have to be prepared for a zero emissions economy. They have to be prepared to account for their scope three emissions and disclose them as well. And scope three are those emissions where you do actually capture what the electricity uh, is made from, is it made from fossil fuels or renewable energy that's coming into your factory. So you really need to be able to do that. Our global manufacturers recognise that and they will choose places with skilled workers, with policy certainty and with the opportunity for clean renewable energy to power their factories. What will be the focus for Beyond Zero Emissions research this year? We've taken our million jobs plan and we've looked at the two most jobs-rich opportunities to decarbonise. So two of those chapters, one chapter is manufacturing and the other is buildings. So in our manufacturing chapter, this will be the focus of the first part of our year. With um, we'll, we'll be leading up to the buildings piece slightly later. Right now, we're all looking at our renewable energy industrial precincts. So you might see on the website that there's a briefing paper that we put together when we started our conversation with the federal government about what our you know million jobs plan was and what the opportunities were. They wanted to hear more about manufacturing. So in response to that, we prepared a briefing paper, Renewable Energy Industrial Precincts, and we've just worked with our partners at WWF to put in a joint submission for the pre-budget treasury submission that outlines a policy framework for how we can actually bring to life renewable energy industrial precincts around Australia. So these precincts are those models of collaboration that I was talking about before, where it's a cluster of manufacturers that are powered by renewable energy, 100% renewable energy, and they're also doing things like generating hydrogen from when there's, there's surplus input to what energy than what they need. They're able to share thermal district uh, thermal heat systems. They're able to plan and centralise energy demand so you can um, concentrate and plan for your transmission lines, your renewable energy zones. If you're in um, New South Wales, you might have noticed there's opportunities there to um, for the Hunter to be a renewable energy zone, and we think the Hunter Valley would also be a fantastic first cab off the rank to be a renewable energy industrial precinct. And what we're doing over the next couple of months is we are signing up manufacturers, investors, local supporters, workers to, to sign their support for renewable energy industrial precincts onto a website that we're making that's going to show us just the volume of support, the amount of jobs that can be provided, the amount of investment that's sitting beside this, and makes really clear what the role is for state, 
federal and local governments in supporting this to happen. So this is BZE working in our, just on the edge of the space that we're most comfortable with. We're yeah. really, yeah. like, really used to writing research and saying how yeah. it can happen. We're going to the next step now and actually showing how it can happen and bringing people together who will actually, we hope at the end of the day, uh, this will result in some real change on the ground. That's good, and we'll report on it, of course, and describe it to people because I think that's what's missing. There's always this problem, um, you know, the media, what, what people know about, and this is hard to convey, and, and yet it's, it is exciting, and I can see your optimism is well-grounded. I'd just like to finish on, because it is such a momentous year ahead, and this is our first program for the year, and many climate campaigners have been telling me that they were in tears to hear the list of executive orders that came out of the new US president just recently, apart from cancelling the permit for the Keystone oil pipeline and freezing new oil and gas leases on public land. He's vowed to double offshore wind capacity and modernise their water and energy infrastructure. Well, we'll wait and see how this gets through, you know, all the political process. But it's just that the tears that people felt to see suddenly snap, 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 things really moving. And the pressure will be on Australia, I hope. Because if you read about Australia in in our media, it doesn't sound like what you're talking about. I don't hear these ideas. They're not headline ideas just yet. For most people, most people feel a bit in despair about it where we're heading. So Joe Biden said, when I think of climate change, I think of jobs. And I thought, gee, he should be, he should be one of us. And I imagine behind him there are plenty of think tanks like BZE in America, aren't there? There'd be an absolute huge number of people now telling, jump into it straight away, because he knew all those things to say, huge number of orders. And he's holding a leaders' climate summit in April. And I wondered if BZE has the ear of the government, what do you want them to take to this summit? If you could just put it like in a nutshell, if you were trying to pitch something, you've given us the idea of the precincts and all that huge research, but just what can Australia take to a summit like that? I think that when Australia looks at how we are seen internationally and where pressure is coming from globally for us to make a shift, what we really need to be doing is looking at this as the opportunity that it genuinely is. So when we're taking things to global summits, we really need to be looking at changing what we offer the global community and the global economy in the transition. We already export raw materials that are needed, raw unprocessed, we export them unprocessed, but they're all the materials that are needed to make batteries that are going to power renewable energy grids. We export some of the best ideas in the world. Like we actually need to be bringing to these global assemblies the real tangible examples about the stuff that Australia can deliver, the way that we can bring our minerals and our natural resources combined with our renewable energy to benefit all of Australians, all of the world, we have a, a really strong future. I think that what we have got to overcome right now is a sense that of, of loss that's coming from the transition. We are changing. The world is changing. That's happening whether or not we try to capitalise on, on the opportunity in front of us. That change is already happening. It's not going to stop moving away from heavy industries powered by fossil fuels. That change is, is done. That's locked in. 
what we have now is the chance to actually look at that shift as the opportunity that it really is. And if we had one big goal, big wish for the year ahead, we really have to look at this becoming um, an, an opportunity that has bipartisan support across Australia. We want to see bipartisan support for policies that rapidly reduce emissions, that focus on the really big opportunity sectors like manufacturing and like the building sector as well, because that's where we're going to be able to move past the politics of this, move past it shouldn't matter whether or not Joe Biden's in office, should it? In future, it doesn't, it should, really shouldn't matter. Every party should be competing to have the best, most ambitious climate policies because of the jobs and the economic benefits that they deliver to all of our communities. So I think that when we can shift this debate past politics, through politics and with politics, I think that's where everyone's going to win. And I'm really excited about the opportunity that BZD has to support the conversations and the changes that are coming up. Thank you, Heidi. So, listeners, we've been talking to the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions. She's been with Beyond Zero Emissions for a long time, but now she's the, at the top and it's a big research team behind her. And as you can see, lots of fresh ideas. Thank you, Heidi. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Global warming will stop. Is that a headline that would stop you in your tracks? Well, Bob Berwyn wrote a headline this January that stopped me in my tracks, and I'd like to invite him to speak to us today from Central Europe. His headline was, Many scientists now say global warming would stop relatively quickly after emissions go to zero. So welcome, Bob. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and who you interviewed to get this story? I'm a freelance journalist. I've been writing about the environment for 20 years and have been focused on climate science for about the last five or six years pretty intensively. And I write for mostly for Inside Climate News, which is a US-based climate-focused publications and, and a few other places as well. And for the story about global warming stopping after emissions, I spoke with, uh, with Michael Mann, a scientist, uh, who's pretty well known. I think he spent part of last mm -hmm. year in Australia mm -hmm. on sabbatical, um, arriving during the fires that you had there, those terrible fires. And then I think he was still there at the start of the pandemic. So the trip didn't turn out for him uh, as I, as he thought, I'm sure. Um, and I spoke to a scientist named Giardi Raj, who's a uh, who's an IPCC lead author. He's one of the main scientists who put together the big 
global climate reports that outline, uh, you know, what the latest uh, knowledge is about how fast the climate is warming and so forth. And I spoke to a couple of other people who specialize in studying carbon budgets who, you know, really look at the numbers very closely as to what happens as we add more CO2 to the atmosphere or what happens if we stop adding it. And, uh, and the way that I came upon the story is that Michael Mann actually did a, a television interview in the U.S., and a colleague sent me a link, and that was the first time that I'd heard this idea articulated so clearly that once we stop increasing the level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, um, temperatures will start to, to level out probably quicker than a lot of people thought just 10 or 20 years ago. There was a, for a long time, a sort of a, the scientific view was that, oh, we've put so much CO2 in the air that temperatures were warm for many decades, even centuries after we stop burning fossil fuels. And more recent uh, climate studies that are more complex and can sort of analyze a bunch of things at the same time, like the level of greenhouse gases, what's happening with ice, what's happening to different parts of the of the climate system suggests that perhaps warming after greenhouse gas emissions stop increasing won't go on for quite as long. Um, well, it could such... stop within 10 or 20 years. Oh, yeah. this is such good news that I don't want to be, um, you know, naive. This is what I want to hear. So, you know, <laughs> I really need to test out what you say. And Absolutely. I, had, yeah. I had really always believed we were locked in, you know, uh-huh. for the future. So I spoke to our local person who's been pumping out this for decade, yeah, decade. You know, I've been to his talks for over a decade. And he wrote a book called Climate Code Red with another author. His name is David Spratt. So I spoke to him yesterday. He said that, look, it's a minefield with all the scientific studies. And even if we stopped emitting greenhouse gases, there are natural systems already destabilized that will continue to emit, such as the permafrost and degraded forests and peatlands. They don't need any more warming to keep going, you know, what they're emitting. So how do you factor that in? Um, Well, I don't factor it in myself, but I talk to the scientists who study it. And David is right that there are natural systems that we don't understand 100%. And that there's a possibility that the warming that we've already caused will lead to even more warming than we think. But based on studies done in the last 10 years that incorporate things like permafrost, though I noticed uh, that's one of the, the big concerns among a lot of scientists, not just David, that we've sort of started this irreversible thaw of permafrost that will release a lot of methane and carbon dioxide and continue to heat the atmosphere even after we stop emitting greenhouse gases. There, you know, that was one of my first questions too when I started working on this story. And so I called several permafrost scientists and they said there's, there's no sign yet that we've reached the degree of warming that would irreversibly, you know, keep that process going. That there are an awful lot of uh, tipping points, what the climate scientists call in these places where 
once you get past a certain amount of warming, these processes start and you can't go back to what, to what was before. Um, Coral reefs, uh, I know that's a huge concern in Australia with what's happening with the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, Mountain glaciers all over the world in the Alps in Europe and South America, somewhere between one and a half and two degrees is the point where we have so much warming that all the glaciers will be gone. At one and a half degrees of warming, they uh, estimate that in Europe, you know, 30% of the glaciers could remain in some point or another. So that's what's so important about trying to, to reach that one and a half degree um, temperature limit. Or not reach. It's not even get to 1.5. You know, this is the right, thing. We, exactly. we keep setting yeah. ourselves these guardrails yeah. and then long-distance yeah. targets, yeah. which put us back to sleep because we thought, that's okay, we yeah. haven't got there yet yeah. and it won't happen. But what David's saying, right. it's so urgent and such an emergency. And there's also It, it problem, is, yeah. yeah. And it also makes a big, big difference how long you stay above those limits. Mm. Um, people who look at climate going back, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds thousands of years, they're able to trace these sort of ups and downs in, in global climate. In periods of warming, if, if, the, if the climate warmed up, say, you know, relatively suddenly for some reason and stayed there for a few centuries, it would start these irreversible processes. In our case, because we have our hand on the control knob, so to say, with CO2, there's a chance that warming could go up above these targets for you know, 10 or 20 years and then start dropping back down. And that's quite a bit different from, you know, from staying above it for a long, long time. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's our thinking needs to be changed and we, it's the time scale we need to think about because this is a climate action. I mostly interview climate activists or campaigners and it's the scale, you know, like the scale of the problem or the, the transformation that needs to happen. We're starting to hear it from uh, the U.S. and I'm going to ask you about Biden in a minute. Uh-huh. But when we say it could stop if we, if we stopped, I think we have to think if we stop very quickly, very quickly, uh-huh. emergency scale, and that's what David's uh-huh. getting at. There are so many things, other factors, that, uh-huh. that make us worried that, that people will be lulled into thinking it's going to be under control. It's, it's uh-huh. a lot of things still up in the air. And he also mentioned the problem of the dimming effect that our pollution has created. And I think he said that since China started to reduce its emissions, there has been um, a 0.1% degree increase in global emissions without all those aerosols blanketing the earth. So that's an example of what's going to happen if we, if we do reduce, there's going to be the reduction of aerosols, which will create more warming. I have spoken, I've written several stories about that, and aerosols definitely have both warming and cooling effects. Overall cooling, though, as, as David said, and the extent of that is also still uncertain. It's definitely the case that if we stop emitting greenhouse gases, the associated pollutants, the basis of those aerosols like sulfuric dioxide and sulfur dioxide and, and other things like that will decrease. And that will contribute to some degree of warming, whether it's one or two tenths of a degree or a half a degree is not quite clear. Um, there's a new study coming out of it, uh, coming out on that in a couple of days that I'm looking forward to reading. It's it's an evolving science, just like permafrost thaw. 
and it's complex. There's a lot of things to measure. There, you know, it's, it's not that easy to measure <laughs> the cooling effect of aerosols across the entire globe, or it's not that easy to say what permafrost is going to do when you're only measuring it in a few hundred places across, uh, you know, 90 million square miles. So, well, this brings us to COVID. Yeah. You know, we've had this unique year of global health problem from COVID, but a lot of industry was stopped as well. A lot of trade was stopped. A lot of aviation was stopped. And why didn't emissions fall significantly? Everyone I've spoken to says, oh, it was a blip. Why was well, that? I guess it depends what you define as, as significant. I mean, it's the biggest year-on-year drop that we've ever, we've ever had, bigger than during the 2008 recession. So I, I don't know that I've seen a 100% total figure, but it's something like 7 or 8%. But yeah, you would think that with the the level of uh, decreased economic activity uh, from the COVID restrictions that it would have dropped even more. And it shows that, you know, even if you shut down air travel, even if you restrict people's automobile mobility, there's still a huge number of industrial processes going on that are still emitting uh, greenhouse gases. In addition, we had an extreme fire year with... Uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions from wildfires globally, emitting a, an amount of CO2 equivalent to a medium-sized country. And then there are also natural variations in CO2, depending what's going on with uh, the oceans, how cold, how warm they are, whether it's in El Nino or La Nina, and also related to agricultural activity in the tropics, especially in Africa and Southern Asia. Um, those things also have a, a huge effect on on the balance of greenhouse gases going into and out of the atmosphere. So the long, the long complicated answer is they did go down, maybe not as much as some people would have expected, but it, it, it's still a pretty big drop. But we're not likely to keep it up. But I want to ask you about, I still want to ask about Biden because everyone's starting to say to me, we're really excited by this. At least he's... <laughs> In the first day, making so many changes, that everyone thinks if you right. can keep this up well and push us to keep yeah. it up, well, that'd be good. Yeah. But just before we leave COVID, I, I reckon a lot of people notice the cracks in their societies because of COVID. You know, the health systems that were inadequate, the inequality between people down to the unequal, now the rollout of the vaccine, it's going to be an unequal rollout. And I want to connect that to climate change. And do you think that that inequality that we have seen in close focus now, will that affect adaptation in low-income countries? And, you know, you've written a little bit about how there's very little research in those countries compared to, say, in Denmark or California or something. There's little research uh -huh. on the impact of climate change. That was a very interesting article. Well, can you explain that a bit to the listeners and also about the green funding that should be flowing to them, is that still going to put this mirror up to the inequality that we've seen in COVID? Wow, that's a really interesting and, and complex question. And it's interesting that you bring it up because as I've interviewed climate scientists over the past year, in almost every conversation, we've ended up talking about COVID. There were a couple of studies done during the past year that looked at climate, specifically at climate extremes research in the developing world, in the global south, and pointed out that there's a huge, a huge gap of, of information 
on heat waves and other climate-linked disasters that are affecting less developed countries. Most recently, I wrote about the United Nations Environmental Program Adaptation Gap Report, which basically concluded that the whole world is still sort of lagging behind goals set in the Paris Agreement to help developing countries adapt and prepare for the climate impacts that they're already experiencing. It's happening now. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. Um, I spoke with a, with a gentleman in Bangladesh who's a climate governance, climate policy expert. And last summer, shortly after they were hit by a, by a tropical typhoon, and he said, we're, we're already living in a loss and damage world using a term that's a, a technical term used in the Paris Agreement for the damage that storms cause. And he said, and we're paying for it with our lives. You're listening to Radio 3CR. We're talking to science journalist Bob Berwin in Austria. Before we go back to Bob, here's a little bit from Greta Thunberg at Davos Economic Forum this January. To wake world leaders up, she talks of targets that equal surrender. Today we hear nations and leaders all over the world speak of an existential climate emergency. And yet... Instead of taking the immediate action you would in any emergency, they set up vague, hypothetical, distant targets way into the future. Targets based on loopholes and incomplete numbers. Targets like net zero emissions 2050. Targets that equal surrender. It's like waking up in the middle of the night, seeing your house on fire and then deciding to wait 10, 20 or 30 years before you call the fire department, while labelling those trying to wake people up alarmists. We understand that the world is complex and that change doesn't happen overnight. But you've now had more than three decades of blah, blah, blah. How many more do you need? Because when it comes to facing the climate emergency, the world is still in a state of complete denial. The justice for the most affected people in the most affected areas is being systematically denied. Even though we welcome every single climate initiative, the targets and commitments being presented and discussed today are very far from being enough. Well, we're, now we come to Biden because the yeah. way he was talking was such a relief. Though local problems he's got or the home problems he's got will also be huge before he gets on to helping force the world and like the United Nations to roll out oh. these green funds for the poorer countries, which, as you say, are already living in the loss and damage world. But people well, tell me, uh, can I say something yeah. real quick? Yeah, he doesn't have to force the rest of the world to do anything. The U.S. Oh, yeah, committed, no. <laughs> the U.S. <laughs> committed. Uh, the U.S. committed $3 billion to the Green Climate Fund, and Trump withdrew $2 billion. I know. Oh, so the I easiest know. thing that Biden can do is just restore that funding pretty yeah. quickly and pretty easily. That's right. I think and before he asks the rest of the world to do anything, he should do that on behalf of the United States. You know, that would Glad you said that. That's yeah. really true. But, you know, they people said, that, that, those things that he said when he cancelled the permit for the Keystone XL, I, I read a comment by a, um, a First Nations woman, you know, they've been trying to stop that pipeline uh -huh. for so long, camping out there, just stopping, stopping, persevering, uh -huh. and then just with a 
flash of a pen, just know that permit's cancelled. That's what we want to see. We want to see things reversed and quickly. Mm-hmm. And I want to know how will – this is a, a local question for Australian listeners. How do you think the USA changing policy like that on climate, taking it seriously, putting it on a war footing, how will they lean on Australia – You know, we're their best buddy, and uh, it's not just our high per capita emissions, but we're also a huge exporter of coal and gas, as you'd know, and that that comprises 23% of our export income. Although China's already stopping our coal ships in their port. They're just waiting in the ports, not being unloaded. But do you see some world pressure on us? Again, you know, I would be cautious about saying that the U.S. has a lot of uh, elbow room to put pressure on anybody right now. I think we need to clean up our own mess first. But on the whole, I think the U.S. rejoining the Paris Agreement and, you know, trying to advance global climate action will, um, I think it will make clear to people all over the world, including Australia, that the era of coal is really quickly coming to an end. You know, that there are huge advantages to be had in shifting away from fossil fuel now, early in the process. And that the countries that do that, the sooner will stand to gain economically. And in the end, the countries that keep relying on fossil fuels are going to be lagging behind. You know, if there's any pressure, it's the pressure of just that becoming more and more clear. You know, I would love to see, you know, not the U.S. putting pressure on Australia, but I would love to see Australia and the U.S. partnering on projects to reduce carbon and to help people and to find alternatives in that spirit that Americans and Australians have always been famous for, solving problems and, and not being afraid to to go to new, you know, to go into new, new to break new ground and sort of that, the idea that progress is always possible and not holding on to the past, you know, that's, that's what I'd like to see. I'd- well, that's right. I mean, COVID's shown us the interconnectedness, how we are connected, mm-hmm. you know, someone yeah. flies in and brings the virus, you, you yeah. can't stop that. And we should be equally connected, I think, with the aid. You know, I've also interviewed Dr. Salim Ulhaq in Bangladesh, and he, you know, he just wants to um, have us aware of our connection to them. You know, the U.S. and Australia, just for example, what comes to mind is that some of the island nations in that area of the Pacific between the U.S. and Hawaii there are the most severely affected by sea level rise. And the U.S. and Australia are geographically positioned and have the resources to best be able to help those countries working together. You know, that's that's what we should be. That's what we should be focusing on right now, as well as, you know, sharing technology and saying like, hey, here's. You know, parts of Australia are like the parts of the Southwest in the U.S., huge potential for solar, for wind, and, and really cooperating on maximizing the benefits of those, of those technologies. I know a lot of that scientific partnership is, goes on regardless of who's, who's in politics, mm. who's in charge of politics. But let's put that front and center. You know, let's team up together and say, hey, we're, we're going to work on these things. These are areas we can help where we have expertise. The U.S. and Australia have been so strongly aligned on so many things for so long. Let's work together to solve this, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, just, um, Bob, to finish, um, these could be exciting times, and putting the transition on a war footing, as uh, I heard President Biden say, 
would reverse trends quickly. And I imagine it like the Roosevelt time, you know, I always loved hearing about the time when they had mm-hmm. millions of people employed to go and plant trees, and those trees are still there. And those, mm-hmm. you know, gains they made in the Dust Bowl, those are still there. And I, but, you know, if they'd kept it up since the 40s, you know, just kept on planting and kept on uh, rehabilitating mm-hmm. wetlands and all of that instead of, you know, one step forward and two steps back as we've been in the world. So I imagine it like that, but I, w- I want to see the bulk of this transformation in the next decade, in the next nine mm-hmm. years, not by 2050. And yet a hundred, mm-hmm. over a hundred countries have pledged to get there by net zero by 2050. I wonder, is that too late according to the scientists and people you talk to? Um, that is being vigorously debated right now. Um, that's the overall goal to get to net zero by 2050. That's still sort of the, you know, the official goal of the Paris climate agreement. Um, we are not there yet. Even with what countries have promised, we're not close to reaching that yet. And we just steadily need to become more ambitious each year as, as we can. And, uh, yeah, we probably need some intermediate targets. So that's what kind of happened um, in, in the past six months or so. A lot of countries announced really big reductions for 2030. So as you said, 10 years from now, not net zero, but, you know, 50 to 60% reductions, which gets us a long way toward net zero than 20 years after that. Um, and, and, yeah, we need pretty much everybody to be on board with that type of reduction in the next 10 years, you know, by half. Um, and then and then we'll see where we go from there. I, I kind of feel um, if, if we could get that 50% reduction roughly by 2030, we'll have so much momentum that it will find it a lot easier to – keep going, you know, the 20 years after that to 2050 and really get down close um, to net zero. And this, I just wanted to add one more thing. This kind of circles back to what we talked about initially, this idea of uh, how soon global warming will stop. We probably shouldn't forget that after we stop burning fossil fuels and emitting greenhouse gases, we need to figure out ways to get greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere too either through directly sucking it out with technology or planting a huge amount of trees, um, improving wetlands, changing agriculture, changing the way we produce food, um, all those things too. So, Yeah, well, we're, we're still okay. facing deforestation here in Australia. It's as bad here as the Amazon. You know, we're still cutting down the trees. So, yeah. And the, I've interviewed people about kelp forests as well. A lot of drawdown things, but but all of this I think needs to happen parallel to the emissions reduction, doesn't it? All of that it needs does. to happen in this decade. And not we have so much. Never, never. You know, we have so much to do. Yeah. All at the same time, we don't really have time to mess around and fight each other and argue about this no. or that. We just need to be doing it all. And, you know, we really can't forget, we can't just be wagging our finger and telling people we need to do this. We need to show people how it's going to benefit them in 10, 20, or 30 years. And we need to show them how it's going to benefit them right away. And we don't want communities to be hurt as a result of of these transitions. 
So we have to work on that on top of everything else. How do you do a, a just transition? How do you make sure that people in coal mining communities aren't hurt really badly? You know, let's, we don't even want to talk about the numbers of how many people work in this or that. Because again, as soon as you start arguing about that, you lose sight of the fact that this is a huge societal challenge that we all have to work on in as many ways as we can, and that it's going to be good for all of us if we can, can do this, because we're going to have a healthier world, a safer world, um, and there's economic benefits in it too. If you want to talk about it in the, you know, in the, within the framework of traditional economics, there's huge amounts of jobs to be had in, in uh, retrofitting buildings and making them more energy efficient in reforestation and other na- uh, nature improvement or restoration projects. That's been such an interesting interview. Bob, you've got your antenna out. What would you like to say to the listeners just to finish off about this momentum? Do you, over the years you've been doing it, as I've been doing this broadcasting i can see a sort of a a new vigor coming in and it's becoming Mm -hmm. much more mainstream to know about these things but you just speak to the australian listeners i'm hopeful i'll speak about the u.s again briefly because we just had this big political change so far president biden and and john Kerry are saying the right things you know i'm looking at the bottom line which is to see where our emissions are in three years or four years you know if they've gone down by whatever percent, I'll, I'll be a lot more optimistic than I am now. Right now, I feel like everybody's saying the right thing and wants mm. to do the right thing. And it's just, you know, it's just barely getting going. But I feel more optimistic than I did, let's say, four or five years ago. And a big part of that is the, the social activism that emerged in 2019 and yeah. specifically the, the youth climate school strike movement, the Fridays for Future movements, and a lot of people taken to the streets on a regular basis, on a weekly basis for a year, um, thousands of people, millions of people really all over the world telling their governments, hey, you signed the Paris Agreement, now live up to what you signed yeah. on to, you know? Yeah. And they were very outspoken and and. Their demands are science-based. They're not radicals. They're not asking for anything unrealistic. They're basically, their calls to their government are saying, here's what the scientists are telling us that we need to do. Let's do it. You know, very clearly, these are young people who see their own future at stake and at risk, you know, willing to take to the streets to voice that. And hopefully that as that generation moves into positions of power and positions of of being able to make decisions, things will change even faster. So I, I hope part of it is, is a generational a generational yeah. change. Great. Thank you very much. I've been inspired by the Green New Deal people, you know, the Leap Manifesto and all those people that got behind Bernie Sanders with the idea of the Green New Deal. I think that's fed into the Biden, and I hope they keep up the, you know, the vigorous um I, you know, planning that they that they mm-hmm. want to roll out. I think that's what we need. We need to see it. As you say, people need to see how it's going to be good for them and how it will happen. Like Naomi Klein talks about the air economy rather than the um, extraction economy. And I think, oh, yes, mm-hmm. that's, a lot of people will get that. I think the, um, the first uh, COVID recovery law in the U.S. included several pretty notable climate uh, protective measures 
and I really imagine that Biden's COVID relief package will also, um, you know, provide money for restarting or what's the word, energizing renewable economies. Yes. People are still going to be fighting about things. There's probably still going to be some subsidies for airlines. There's probably still going to be some subsidies for fossil fuel companies. I hope not, but there probably will be, but hopefully less than there were and hopefully a lot of money for, for other types of, of things yes. too. Um, it, I don't know how much time you have, but a brief example from Europe um, during the lockdown, a bunch of airports closed, and I live in Austria and Central Europe, as you mentioned, and some of them are not going to reopen after the pandemic. Smaller, really? local, local, smaller airports, yeah, well, we have a much denser public transit net than, mm. you know, than a lot of countries here, uh, but um, they're just not going to reopen, and, you know, they said, they gave, they gave the Austrian airlines some money and said, but you can't fly these like, you know, half hour flights between Vienna and Salzburg anymore. It's like a hundred miles or something like that. You know, it's ridiculous. But at the same time, they announced an expansion of the rail net with night trains, really fast night trains that will go from European capital to European capital in, you know, just a little slightly more time than a flight would take and get you from city center to city center. So there's these two things. There's on the one side, okay, we're going to give you some money so you survive as an airline, but you have to stop these really carbon-intensive short-distance flights. Instead, we're going to replace it with energy-efficient transit. So these are examples of how these relief measures can work, and you can still criticize the fact that they gave airlines any money at all, but you can also praise the fact that they came up with this uh, – uh, you know, plan to at least reduce some of the most damaging flights and encourage more pu public transit. So oh, it was like, you know, a step back and a half a uh, step forward, two steps forward, a step back, you know. That's the world we're living in. So it thank is. you very much, Bob. Very thank welcome. you. We've been talking My pleasure. to Bob Berman, who's an international journalist, really, based in, or yeah, based in Austria. So thanks for talking to us, Bob. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Thanks tonight to Andy, Michaela and Raoul. A special thanks to David Spratt who briefed me very thoroughly. Our guests were journalist Bob Berwin in Austria and the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions, Heidi Lee, in Melbourne. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night help, and help. good luck. Hello down there. Are you okay? No, I I'm stuck. Stuck?
Yeah, I'm stuck in a country that for two decades has done nothing on climate change. Oh no! Can I grab you a rope? No, there's a rock on me. I, I can't move. A rock? What the hell? Well, it's a weight of despair and an apathetic government, powerful lobby groups and an indifferent mainstream media. Dear God, what on earth can I do to help? Go now and pledge money. Great. What do I do? Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Anything else? Yeah. Remember in your donation to mention the Beyond Zero Emissions radio program. I'll go right away.